Yeah, so this is our uh, reading group on Simondon's individuation in light of notions of form and information. Um, we missed last week because of connection issues, but we're picking up from where we were the week before, uh, which is right at the bottom of page 369 of the translation. So we're maybe a third or, or halfway through the conclusion. So we're almost done with the, the book itself in the, the first volume. And then the second volume has the complementary text um, which we can look at uh, when we get to them. So the in the first part of the conclusion that we've gone through so far, he's returning to some ideas that he, or concepts that he presented in the introduction, uh, and then he kind of left them aside for most of the book, um, aside from a few sort of brief passages, and then he comes back to them. So this idea of the phases of being and, and dephasing of being, the, the sort of schema is of a, a pre-individual being uh, which is greater than unity. It, it's, uh, it's something that uh, is not governed by the principle of excluded middle. And this, this state of pre-individual being is full of tensions and potentials for future transformation. So this pre-individual being uh, splits into separate phases. So it splits into uh, an individual and an associated milieu, which remains unindividuated. And then we have the final stage of this operation, which is uh, something that doesn't always happen. It's, it's a, a sort of contingent happening is the formation of a collective in which the individual uh, is, is incorporated. So you have pre-individual being, individuation, uh, and then the formation of the collective. Are, those are the, the three stages that the, the process goes through. And so, yeah, and maybe I should just clarify that the, the stages here are not the same thing as the phases. So the phases are, are what the pre-individual being splits into. Um, it, so the individual and the milieu are the phases, and then the stages are the, the stages of the process that I just outlined. And then so he, he talks about how this doctrine of the individual or doctrine of individuation is uh, is sort of the the first philosophy. So if you start from a more traditional conception of the individual and the individual as, as something in which the the entities enter into relations, uh, in particular the subject-object relation as um, a relationship between individuals that are already individuated. If you start from that conception, then you, you're you already presupposing uh, a doctrine of the individual, but you're not accounting for the individuation of that individual. And and so for Simon Dome, this traditional conception of the subject and object as entities that secondarily come into relation with each other uh, is already presupposing the the nature of the individual and, and the fact that the uh, individual is um, exhaust reality. So everything that is, is an individual. So Simon Don wants to uh, get away from that presupposition and see what the consequences of, of breaking from that presupposition are. And then we have this development of this idea of, of how this doctrine of individuation is uh, a way of accounting for becoming in, uh, in a way that is not, that can't be grasped in an account of of the individual of being as uh, as the individual, and he points to Spinoza and Leibniz as two sort of failed attempts or two instances where uh, a, a form of substantialism, uh, a doctrine in which uh, the individual exhausts reality, leads to uh, the the absence of a, an understanding of becoming. 
Uh, and so for Spinoza, of course, there's only becoming from the perspective of finite beings, uh, whereas in the in the infinite understanding of God, there's really no becoming um, and uh, everything is um, made up of eternal truths. And then for Leibniz, uh, there's this doctrine of the uh, the individual concept so that uh, each each substance, each individual has its own concepts, which contains within it everything that happens to that individual or that that individual does throughout its lifespan or period of existence. So like the example he gives is that uh, the concept of Julius Caesar includes the fact that, that he would cross the Rubicon and be stabbed by Brutus and, and so on. Everything in his life was included in that concept. Uh, and so there's this, um, in, in each case, there's a necessity about everything that happens because it's, it's all included in the, the initial setup uh, of the substance, whether it's the one substance of Spinoza or the infinitely many substances of Leibniz. And so because everything is already included in the beginning, there's, re there's really no becoming or becoming is, is a sort of illusion. Uh, and so for Simondon to, to uh, have a, a real grasp of becoming, we need to have uh, an account of individuation that doesn't presuppose the, that the individual exhausts reality. And, and he, we see also his, his criticism of dialectics. And I think he's specifically thinking of Hegelian dialectics here. He suggests that uh, in dialectics, the, the relationship between being and becoming is still too external. Uh, so there's, there's no, um, so rather than having an account of how being becomes, we have instead being and becoming as two separate moments of the dialectic and, and we have a transition from one to the other. And, and so for Simondon, this is still too external. So it's, it's not a, a proper uh, grasp of, of becoming as such. It's uh, making being suffer the, the, the process of becoming rather than having being itself become. Um, let's see, what else do we have? I think that's about it for what we saw so far. Right, so we can pick up from the bottom of 369. Um, so I'll read a page or so and then we'll continue. Such a conception could be considered gratuitous and treated as one usually treats the creationist hypothesis. What is the point of pushing back into an unknowable state of pre-individual being, the forces that are destined to account for ontogenesis, if this state is only known through what follows it? If this were the case, it, would, it could indeed be said that the problem is merely pushed back, just as one does by supposing the prior existence of a creator being. This being is only presupposed as creative to the extent that the notion of creation serves to account for the created, such that the essence of the being invoked as creator is in fact fully known based on the result upon which one must fall back, i.e. being as created. Nevertheless, it seems that the hypothesis according to which a state of pre-individual being exists plays a different role than that of the usual creationist hypothesis. Indeed, this hypothesis concentrates all being in its origins, such that every creationism brings with it the problem of theodicy, the ethical aspect of a more general problem. Becoming is no longer a veritable becoming. It is fully whole, as though it had already happened in the act of creation, which obliges to contribute after the fact a certain number of local correctives to the creationist theory in order to give a meaning to becoming. Nevertheless, these correctives must most generally concern the points that upset the feeling that man has of becoming, for example, the problem of moral responsibility. 
but creationism should be corrected on all points, for it is no more satisfying to annihilate the reality of physical becoming than to diminish that of the becoming of the human being as an ethical subject. This difference of treatment can only be justified by a dualism that is itself contestable. There would be a need to add a veritable physical theodicy to the ethical theodicy. On the contrary, the hypothesis of a pre-individual state of being is not totally gratuitous. It contains more than it seeks to explain. It is not solely formed based on the examination of the existence of individuals. It is derived from a certain number of schemata of thought borrowed from the domains of physics, biology, and technology. Physics does not reveal the existence of a pre-individual reality, but it shows that there are geneses of individualized realities based on standard states. A photon is a physical individual in a certain sense. However, it is also a quantity of energy that can reveal itself in transformation. An individual like an electron is in an interaction with fields. A structural change of a molecular, atomic, or nuclear edifice produces energy and engenders physical individuals. Physics urges us to think the individual as exchangeable with the structural modification of a system, and thus with a certain definite system state. In the foundation of the ontogenesis of physical beings, there is a general theory of the exchanges and modifications of states that could be called allegmatics. This conceptual ensemble supposes that the individual is not an absolute becoming, and that its genesis can be studied based on a certain number of energetic and structural conditions. Ontogenesis pertains to the becoming of systems. The appearance of an individual corresponds to a certain system state and presents a meaning relative to this system. Furthermore, the physical individual is relative. It is not substantial. It is relative because it is in relation, quite particularly in energetic relation with fields, and this relation is part of its being. In wave mechanics, an electron has an associated wavelength. In the Davison-Dermer experiment, electrons can be made to interfere. However, electrons are considered as bits of electricity, indivisible charges. This existence of the phenomenon of interference, and generally of all phenomena which are accounted for by defining the associated wavelength, shows that there is a sort of physical collective within which the role of the individual is no longer merely an apportioned role for which one would want to account for, so, sorry, for which one would want to account by means of the notion of substance. The microphysical individual is as much an energetic reality as a substantial being. It adheres to its genesis and remains present in its becoming, since it is in perpetual relation with fields. The individual is not the entirety of the being. It is only an aspect of the being. What matters is the study of the conditions in which the being manifests as individual, as if this involved not the being, but a, a manner of being or a moment of being. In physics, there is a pre-individual being and a post-individual being. A photon disappears and becomes the structural change of an atomic edifice, or instead it changes wavelength as if it had become other. Individuality becomes functional in some way. It is not the sole aspect of reality, but a certain function of reality. Right, so here we have um, a continuation of the, the criticism of substantialism. Uh, and in particular, um, this is in relation to Leibniz, um, because Leibniz has a, a book on theodicy, uh, and um, so for Leibniz, uh, of course, there's the famous doctrine that um, this is the best of all possible worlds that, that God chose um, out of the, the um, ensemble of possible worlds, the one that maximizes um, the uh, amount of existence with the minimum number of laws uh, that, um, that generate it. Uh, 
so um, this world is the optimal world in in that sense. Um, and uh, of course, this this idea of uh, um, the best of all possible worlds is hard to reconcile with the existence of um, you know evil in various forms, um, unnecessary suffering, or whatever you want to point to. Uh, and and so Leibniz has to sort of um, uh, evade that problem um, and uh, argue that the the um, the suffering in the part or the the what seems to be evil uh, from the perspective of uh, of a finite being is actually contributing to the greater good uh, in the long run um, and and so there's a, a doctrine of um, uh, of, of the contribution of the the finite uh, part to the greater good of the whole um, but uh, I think I think this type of doctrine is generally considered not very satisfying. Um, it, it's hard to uh, take the the greater good of the whole um, as as uh, consolation if you are the one who is suffering from the the um, the evil in the in the part. Um, but uh, Simon Don here is arguing that uh, this type of theodicy that that um, Leibniz has to do. To, to try to reconcile um, the moral principles uh, of human beings with um, the absence of becoming in his system. Uh, this, this would apply also to physical becoming or to any other form of becoming. It's just, uh, it's just a question of what seems most relevant to us as, as human beings is, is, of course, human affairs. Um, and, and so um, the same type of problem of reconciling coming with the the idea that everything is already predetermined at the outset, um, that same problem would arise for physical um, individuation as or or the physical domain as well as for the human domain. And uh, this is something that, um, in connection with uh, contemporary physics, is still a, a sort of a, a an issue that hasn't been resolved. Um, because uh, certain, um, well, depending on the types of models that, that people use, uh, some of them involve the idea that time is uh, an emergent property, so that um, there, it, time is not a fundamental property of the universe, and it's, it's something that um, is sort of grounded in, in something more fundamental. And, and so that um, suggests that the experience of time that we have is in some sense illusory uh, or um, doesn't represent the underlying reality of the universe. And if that's the case, then um, then our uh, understanding of the future as contingent is uh, mistaken. Um, we, we have uh, a representation of the future as contingent, but uh, in reality, Everything is already sort of predetermined. Uh, you, can, you can't even say predetermined, but it's determined outside of time by whatever underlying reality this model posits. Uh, so this is still a, a, an open problem in uh, in physics, in short. Uh, we have a comment from Angus in the chat um, saying, "I wonder if explicitly founding your philosophy on schemata from physical sciences puts it in danger of either becoming outdated." 
or being accused of improperly applying or understanding those sciences. Uh, yes, I think that's that's a, a danger um, for sure. That there there are parts of what Simono talks about in this book that are um, outdated. Um, you know, given that it was written uh, in the 1950s, there there have been a lot of advances in science that obviously he couldn't have uh, accounted for. Um, uh, but I think he would say that this is a risk that you have to take. Um, to to um, you have to to be able to grasp um, uh, these schemas uh, or, or schemata of uh, of understanding individuation. So it's only it's only by um, taking the the these schemata of thought from whatever. Um, uh, domain of of human understanding seems to um, have the have the um, these schemata available. So in this case, it would be science. Uh, it's only if you um, can draw from any particular domain of, of human understanding that um, that you can um, uh, adopt these new ways of thinking. And and so he. Um, at one point in this conclusion, I, I can't remember if we have already read it or if it comes later, but he um, he suggests that the um, the use of paradigms drawn from physical reality is necessary because uh, of the way that the hylomorphic schema is uh, sort of imposed on on our thinking by our prevailing culture, um, and. Uh, he talks about this a little bit more in, um, or in a, a slightly different context in his other book on the mode of existence of technical objects. Um, he he talks about how um, our cultural representations um, draw from um, uh, essentially obsolete technology and science. Um, the the technology and science of uh, the classical world. Um, are, are, are sort of um, metaphors and and the um, modes of thinking that we uh, sort of have have recourse to in in our culture are um, are obsolete ones in the sense that they they don't correspond to the existing state of technology and science uh, and so um, it it's it's necessary to to overcome these um, uh, obsolete um, schema, schemata of thought, we have to um, use the, the science of our day, even though, of course, it will eventually become obsolete um, in its turn. But then there would be a new operation of thought using the new science um, that would have to occur. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it makes sense that he would say that we're already doing this anyway, just, you know, as he shows in the brick making example um that that schema is inadequate but it, it's also a scientific or technological schema yeah exactly so there even when you you sort of set out to um to uh, operate by by sort of pure thought or to to not use some sort of technical schema you're you're still using a technical schema just one that is not uh, made explicit and so because it's um 
because it's not made explicit, that means that you're sort of importing in all the assumptions that that schema um, uh, presupposes uh, without having a, um, a critical understanding of you know whether these uh, presuppositions are valid or not. Uh, okay, so let's go on to the next bit on uh, 371, I believe is where we are. Uh, I can read. Sure. By generalizing this relativization of the individual and by transporting it into the reflexive domain, the study of individuation can be transformed into a theory of being. Individuation is then situated with respect to being. It appears as a modification of the being based upon which the latter's problematic becomes enriched. It is the appearance of information within the being system. Instead of treating information as an absolute parameter that is measurable and quantifiable in a limited number of circumstances, it must be linked to individuation. There is information only as an exchange between the parts of a system that involve individuation. Because in order for information to exist, it must have a sense and it must be received, i.e. it must be able to serve to carry out a certain operation. Information is defined by the way in which an individuated system affects itself by conditioning itself. It is that through which there is a certain mode of conditioning of the being by itself, a mode that can be called internal resonance. Information is individuating and requires a certain degree of individuation in order to be able to be received. It is that through which the operation of individuation progresses that through which this operation conditions itself. Form-taking, through which individuation is generally represented, presupposes information and serves as a basis for information. There is information exchanged only between, an already, only between already individuated beings and within a systematics of the being that constitutes a new individuation. It could be said that information is always internal. Information must not be confused with the signals and signal supports that constitute its mediator. Information must be understood in the veritable conditions of its genesis, which are the very conditions of individuation in which it plays a role. Information is a certain aspect of individuation. In order for it to be understood as having a sense, that without which it is not information, but merely a weak energy, there must be a certain potential prior to itself. The fact that an information is veritably information is identical to the fact that something individuates. And information is exchange, the modality of internal resonance according to which this individuation effectuates itself. Every information is both informing and informed. It must be grasped in this active transition of the being that is individuating. It is that through which being phase shifts and becomes in its separate, recorded, indirectly transmitted aspects, information also expresses a complete individuation and the resurgence of this completion that can extend into other stages of amplification. Information is never after individuation alone, for if it expresses a completed individuation, it does so with respect to another individuation that is capable of being completed. As the expression of a completed individuation Information is the seed around which a new individuation will be able to complete itself. It establishes the transductivity 
of successive individuations, arranging them into a series insofar as it traverses them by carrying what can be taken back up from one individuation to the next. Information is that which overflows from one individuation to the next and from the pre-individual to the individuated. Since the schema according to which an individuation completes itself is capable of initiating other individuations. Information has an exterior power because it is an interior solution. It is that which passes from one problem to the next, that which can radiate from one domain of individuation to another domain of individuation. Information is significative in, is significative information because it is initially the schema according to which a system has successfully individuated. This is why information can become the schema for another system. Uh, this supposes that there is an analogy between the first and second system. However, in a doctrine that avoids invoking a creationist postulate in order for there to be an analogy between the two systems, these two systems must belong to a vaster system. This means that when information appears in a subset as a schema of resolution of this subset, it is already the resolution not only of this subset, but also of that within which it expresses its belonging to the set. It is from the start capable of being transferred to other subsets. Uh, it is from the start interior to the original subset and already interior to the set as expressing that which in each subset is its mark of belonging to the set, i.e. the manner in which it is modified by the other subsets that constitute the set with it. It could be said that information is both interior and exterior. It expresses the limits of a subset. It is the mediation between the set and each subset. It is the internal resonance of the set insofar as it includes subsets. It realizes the individuation of the set as the progress of solutions between the subsets that constitute it. It is the internal resonance of the structures of subsets within the set. This exchange is interior relative to the set and exterior relative to each of the subsets. Information expresses the eminence of the set in each of the subsets and the existence of the set as a group of subsets really incorporating liquidity of each subset, which is the reciprocal of the imminence of the set to each of the subsets. If there is indeed a dependence of each subset relative to the set, there is also a dependence of the set relative to the subsets. The reciprocity between two levels designates what can be called the internal resonance of the set, and it defines the set as a reality undergoing individuation. It seems like the idea with the sets and the subsets here is that in order for there to be information between two, two sets, they actually have to be subsets of a larger set. I'm not entirely sure I understand what that has to do with, uh, with creationism, unless his point is just that, you know, since it's a kind of ongoing becoming through these successive informations, uh, we can't. I don't know, can't sort of put all of the becoming at the beginning. Um, I'm not really sure I follow that, though. 
I think the connection with the criticism of creationism has to do with um, the the uh, rejection of any sort of pre-established harmony um, hypothesis, uh, and and so this so pre-established harmony was um, another of Leibniz's concepts, uh, which he used to account for the um, apparent coordination between between different substances. <clears throat> um, so each substance is uh, sort of has its own. Uh, uh, internal concept and it evolves uh, in accordance with that concept. Um, but uh, all the different substances are are constituted in such a way that it seems as if they um, are influencing each other, even though each one is actually evolving according to its own uh, internal concept. Uh, and and so this the fact of this um, apparent coordination is what Leibniz calls uh, pre-established harmony. Um, and and so it, it's a a, um, a doctrine like this, I think that um, that Simon Don is criticizing. It, it would be an, a doctrine in which um, the possibility for the transmission of information would rest on some sort of um, uh, choice of the creator to um, make different domains compatible with each other. Uh, and so these domains would have this pre-established harmony between each other. Um, and so what Simon Don is arguing here is that uh, if we reject this supposition of uh, a creator that, that makes the domains compatible with each other, then the only way for that compatibility to, um, to occur is if those two domains are part of a, a broader domain that includes both of them. Uh, and and then we can have um, um, uh, the transmission of information um, between the, the two domains, or or the um, the process of individuation that occurs in one domain can be transferred to another domain. Does this mean that there's like one final set that grounds all of the subsets? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, it it seems as if um, this uh, this theory of of information requires that um, that there has to be a whole in which every other um, component uh, is is um, is a or sorry every other reality is a component of that whole um, and. Um, yeah, so it, this this language of sets and subsets makes that notion um, problematic because in set theory, of course, there's a, a you know famous result that there there is no set of all sets. Um, there's no uh, total set, um, and um, Simon Don uh, uses the language of sets here, but he he doesn't seem to be appealing to set theory as an established um, mathematical discipline. Uh, and, and it does seem as if he, um, he, his, his argument seems to um, lead to the conclusion that there would be a, a, a set of all sets or a total set. So uh, is it the idea like it's a finite being constitutes like an infinite being? Like, like in a way, like it reminds me of like the Spinoza, like, um, 
does it have some kind of relation to like a Spinozian idea? Like there could be some infinite thing, and then in in it, each finite thing like plays a role. Like it's part of. I mean, the part of the infinite thing, if infinite in eternity, whatever. And then plus, like I don't know how. <sighs> Like it sounds like Simongdong tried to criticize the life nets, but the um in what part like a there could be distinction like it seems like to have some kind of overlapping kind of idea. I mean the previous part and then this one altogether. Um, yeah, so the the Spinoza point is a that, that's a, a good question because as we've seen uh, earlier, he's he's criticized Spinoza um, as as not being able to account for becoming. Um, uh, but you're right that this notion of um, a total set in which everything else uh, would be a part um, is uh, sort of similar to the Spinozist uh, substance in which everything else is uh, uh, inheres. Um, and um, yeah, so I guess a question that, that you could, or an objection that, you, that could be raised to, um, to that conception uh, would be that we're still sort of putting everything in at the beginning if we, if we Take it that um, this pre-individual being is a, a sort of um, all-encompassing reality in which everything else, uh, uh, or out of which everything else is uh, individuated afterwards. Then we're still, in some sense, uh, putting all of the reality into this pre-individual being at the beginning, uh, and then everything else is is sort of coming out of it later. Um, but it, it's just kind of drawing the consequences of what already existed. Um, and I think I think how Simon Don would answer that is that um, um, the the process of individuation is a is a, a real becoming in the sense that it uh, involves a, a kind of discovery. Um, so the the um, portions of this pre-individual reality or the aspects of this pre-individual reality are not compatible until this discovery of their compatibility. Um, so like the standard example of the, the disparate retinal images are the two images are incompatible until um, the, the organism discovers the dimension of depth, which makes them compatible. And so I think for him, um, it's this aspect of discovery that that means that makes it um, uh, different than the Spinoza's notion of the the one substance, um, because uh, the there's this real discovery and real becoming um, that uh, um, individuation consists in, uh, which is not um, which doesn't occur in the Spinoza's system. So that that means there could be multiple layers of a possibility or potentiality, like in terms of becoming. So it's not predestined, um, becoming or becoming. So it could be, it 
emphasize I'm assuming the more emphasizes like autonomy autonomy of becoming like there could be more possibility I mean not, nothing is like a pre uh, destined pre pre predetermined or something like that that's the point yeah I think that's right I think um because um because there's this notion of um becoming as a discovery um there, there that means that there's no predestination uh and uh um yeah so there's there's uh the certain um contingency that is um built into his conception of individuation so it's only it's only a discovery because it could have been uh otherwise it it uh, the process of individuation could have occurred in a different way or not at all. Um, and, uh, and so, um, because of that, it means that the, the whole development is not included in the beginning, uh, in the way that it is for Spinoza. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the, the question. That's, um, an important point, I think, um, Right, so let's go on to the next um, page or so. So we are at uh, 373, about halfway down the page, if someone would like to pick up from there. Uh, I can read. 373? Sure. Yes, we're at Can a Theory of Individuation. Uh, I tried to see like through my, my paper, but better read this using this one. 373, can, can a theory, that one? Yes. Can can a theory of individuation provide an ethics through an intermediary of notion of information? It can at least serve to lay down the basis of an ethics, even if it cannot complete the letter due to the incapa incapacity to present uh, the its circumstances. In philosophical systems, ethics is generally divided into two paths that diverge and never rejoin. That of pure ethics that of applied ethics. This duality stems from the fact that substance is separate from becoming, and because being which is defined as one and completely given in individuated substance is finished. Thus, on the level of the essences and outside becoming, there arises a pure ethics that can only manage to preserve the theoretical substantial, uh, substantiality of the individuated being, and in fact surrounds the latter with an illusion of substantiality. This first path of the ethics, which could be called a substantializing ethics, or the ethics of sage, or contemplative ethics, is only valid for a state of exception, which would not accept itself be stable without its opposition to the state of passion, servitude, vice, and existence in the, in the here and now. Substantiality is merely a counter-existence, anti-becoming and life must become around it so that it can acquire the impression of substantiality by contrast. Contemplative virtue requires merchants and madmen, just as the sober man requires the drunk, drunk man in order to be aware of being sober, and the other needs the child to know what it is to be a dirt. It's only through an effect of a perceptive and effective relativity that this ethics can seem like an ethics of wisdom, seeking the immutability of being. The same applies for the other branch of ethics, which is allegedly practical. 
It is only practical relative to the first type of ethics, and it utilizes the value defined by the first in order to have the ability to be constituted itself with its stability. In fact, what has a signification is the pair of the two ethics, not each ethics by itself. Nevertheless, they define norms that provide incompatible directions, i.e., they create divergence. Their, their very pairing is insufficient, in that it merely possesses a common logical axiomatic, not mutually coherent normative directions. The ethics of becoming and of action in the present requires the ethics of wisdom turned towards eternity. In order to be aware of itself as an ethics of action, it is an, in harmony with itself more so in what it refuses than in what it constructs. Just like the ethics of wisdom, the internal coherence of each of these ethics forms by way of the, the negative as a refuser of the path of the other ethics. Continue? Uh, yeah, sure. The notion of communication as identical to the internal resonance of a system undergoing individuation can 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 on the contrary endeavor endeavor to grasp being in its becoming without granting a privilege to the immobile essence of being or to becoming core becoming there can be a single and complete ethics only to the extent in which the becoming of a being is grasped as being itself i.e. to the extent that becoming is known as the being's becoming. The two approaches ethics, pure theoretical ethics and practical ethics, separate in interiority and exteriority relative to individuated being because with the ethics of a comp- contemplation, individuation is considered interior to the moment in which becoming, becoming conscious is achieved and for practical ethics, as always posterior to this moment. Theoretical ethics is a perpetual nostalgia for the individuated being in its purity, just as practical ethics is an ever-renewed preparation for an ever-deferred ontogenesis. Neither of the two can grasp and accompany being in its individuation. However, if individuation is considered as conditioned by the internal resonance of a system and can effectuate itself practically, fractionally, by way of a successive constitution of a metastable equilibrium, we can neither accept an ethics of being eternity, which seeks to concrete, concrete, uh, oh, no, 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 consecrate, consecrate a structure that is discovered once and for all as definitive and eternal, one that is consequently an eminently respectable structure. The first and last term reference, a structure that translates itself into norms that are absolutely like it. No except the perpetual evolution of the ever-moving being that becomes and changes continually throughout all the mobile circumstances that condition, act, condition action, and incessantly modify the norms according to which action must develop in order to accompany this ongoing evolution. The notion the notion of successive, the notion of successive series of metastable equilibrium must, must be substituted for the stability of the non- unconditional absolute and this perpetual evolution of a fluid relativity. Norms are the lines of internal coherence which of this equilibrium 
and values are lines according to which stru the structures of system translate themselves into the structures of the system that replaces the former system. Values are that through which the norm the norms of system can become the norms of another system through a change of structures. Values established can make possible the transductivity of norms, not as a per permanent norm that is nobler than the others. For it would be quite difficult to discover a norm that was already truly given. But as the meaning of axiomatic of becoming that is conserved from one method stable to the next, values are the capacity implicative transfer contained in the system of norms, i.e. they are norms that to the state of information. They are what is a conserved form from one state to another. Everything is relative, except the very formula of this relativity. Formula, a formula according to which a stem of norms can be converted into another system of norms, surpassing the system in its given form, normality, normativity itself can be considered as value, i.e. as that which passes from one state to another. Take one by one, the norms of a system are functional and seem to exhaust their meaning in its functionality. But the system is more than functional, and this is why it is value. It could be said the value is the relativity of system of norms, and is known and defined within the system of norms itself. In order for the normativity of the system of norms to be complete, it is necessary that within the very system its own destruction as a system, and its possibility of translation into another system must be predicted according to a transductive order. That the system knows its own relativity within itself, that it is form, formed according to, according to, according to, where is it? Sorry. According to this relativity, its own metastability being incorporated into the conditions of equilibrium, such as the path according to which the two ethics will have to co coincide. Oh, we, might wanna, eight, we might want to, uh, um, just because it's like a three-page paragraph, yeah. take a break. Um, at this at this point, here coincide. With, that's it. Yeah, we can stop here. That's that's fine. Um, sorry, I I, uh, I should have um, stopped you a little bit earlier uh, because yeah, this is a giant um, multi-page paragraph like uh, like we've seen before. Um, but uh, yeah, so thanks. Um, yeah, so this there's um a bit of a, a shift in or actually a, a pretty pretty strong shift in the focus. Focus towards the end of this conclusion um, to this notion of ethics, which um, we've seen a little bit about before. Like he's he's had these um, sort of uh, asides throughout the text where he talks about ethics, um, and so Angus has has pointed back to one uh, on when he when he talks about spirituality, um, and uh, he talks about these different figures of uh, the sage and um, the the uh, the hero um, and I forget what the third one is, but um, um, these these different um, sort of ethical figures that uh, that um, are are different instances of of ethical life, um, and and so here we get an ethics of individuation um, sort of developed over the la the last um, five pages or so of this book, uh, and. 
he sets out um, as as he does with many other concepts. He sets it out by um, starting from this opposition between the, the two extreme uh, extremes of a of a series, uh, and then he wants to find a, a middle ground out of which those two extremes will be generated. Uh, and so, in this case, it's the this um, pure ethics versus applied ethics opposition. Um, so the pure ethics is the ethics of substantiality. So it's an, an ethics that would be eternal um, uh, and it would um, it would be uh, an ethics that um, is opposed to the becoming of uh, of reality. Um, and and so his his criticism of this ethics is that it, uh, and, and he makes the same criticism of the, the applied ethics as well, but um, criticism is that it can only really um, formulate itself in opposition to the other uh, form of ethics. So uh, this ethics of this pure ethics can only, um, can only uh, formulate itself by opposing itself to the, the ways of the world or, or something along those lines. Um, so, you can have a figure of the sage as um, someone who withdraws from the world uh, and lives the the pure life um, that is sort of separate from uh, the becoming uh, in reality. Uh, but this this figure only makes sense in opposition to um, to uh, a world of becoming, a world in which uh, a world governed by an ethics that is not an ethics of uh, of eternity. Um, uh, and then likewise, if you look at the other side, this applied ethics, um, this would, this would be an ethics that is always shifting. It doesn't, um, doesn't recognize any permanent, uh, reality. Um, and, uh, it's always adapting to circumstances. Uh, and, and so this kind of ethics, uh, likewise can only, um, recognize itself as applied, um, by opposing itself to the pure ethics, it can only um, set itself out or formulate itself uh, insofar as it is uh, an ethics of the world as opposed to uh, an otherworldly ethics. And um, what Simondon wants to do, as, as we'll see as, uh, as we continue reading, is to um, find the the points, the the intermediate points between these two ethics uh, that serves as the the point from which each of them can be uh, can be generated, uh, and he's going to um, well, we we already see uh, the beginning of this development in the part that we just read. Um, this opposition between norms and values, um, and he's going to develop this further as we continue. Um, um, so the norms have to do with the what what's. Um, what's included within uh, the norms uh, belong to each of these ethics. So each ethic proposes certain norms for behavior. It says that, you know, doing this kind of thing is good and doing this other kind of thing is bad. Um, but then the values are um, what uh, sort of goes beyond, um, goes beyond any one particular uh, ethics. And uh, it's what passes from one ethics to the other. Um, so it's, um, you might have a system of ethics that, um, that says, uh, I don't know, obeying your parents or obeying, 
authority figures is is uh, an important norm and um um there would be uh so that you would have a system of norms like that and you would have a system of uh principles for what types of behavior is is ethical uh and then values would be the the capacity that some of those norms would have for uh being transferred or or passing into another system of of ethics um so there might be an ethics of uh, a value of of justice for example that might be something that can uh pass from one uh, system of ethics to another one um it, it it's it's something that goes beyond any one system of ethics um, and we'll see more on this opposition between norms and values as we continue. Um, but um, uh, what he argues here in the last bit that we read is that um, this uh, opposition between um, between the two ethics is itself something that we have to um, uh, we have to account for in terms of the norms and values. So um, it, it's only uh, like the, this opposition of the two ethics, the, the pure ethics and the applied ethics uh, is itself something that um, is a, a, a form of ethics. Um, like it's the, the system formed by the two together that that is a, a, a sort of coherent ethics and not each one on its own. Um, and then there's also there's a, a development or a, a passage in here on um, on functionality um, and this idea. Um, so norms are are taken to be functional. So this is a, a sort of um, sociological understanding of norms. Uh, so like a society has norms of behavior uh, that that govern the behavior of the members of that society uh, and um, uh, make the members of the society behave in a way that allows for the society to continue to exist and reproduce itself from one uh, moment to the next and, and sort of continue in existence. Um, and so the norms would be functional in that sense. They, they contribute to the, the ongoing functioning of the society. Uh, but then um, there is another side to, um, to these principles in which they sort of go beyond anything functional um so like a principle like something like justice is um it can be used uh you know as a as a a norm for the functioning of society and say you know it's just for certain people to to do certain things and and uh um you know and to have a certain distribution of uh tasks within a society for example um but then the just the same principle of justice can also be used against a certain social order and say that this this social order is unjust uh, and um, uh, to make demands of uh, a, a different social order. Um, um, so the the same principle can can serve as a norm if, insofar as it's functional to the um, for the the ongoing functioning of a of a society, and it can also serve as a, a value insofar as it um, exceeds or or goes beyond what is functional within that society. Um, okay, so let's go on. Um, let's see if we can maybe push through and finish the uh, the conclusion today because we we got farther than I expected at this point. Um, so I I can read the next bit. Um, 
let's see, where did we end? Um, right, so we ended with the two ethics will have to coincide. Um, okay. The tendency toward eternity then becomes the awareness of the relative, which is no longer a will to halt becoming or to make an origin absolute and to grant a normative privilege to a structure, but the knowledge of the metastability of norms, the awareness of the meaning of transfer that the individual qua individual has. The will to find absolute and immutable norms corresponds to this veridical feeling according to which there is something that must not be lost and which, surpassing adaptation to becoming, must possess the power to guide becoming. But this guiding force that is not lost cannot be a norm. Such a search for an absolute norm can lead only to a morality of wisdom as separation, withdrawal, and leisure, which is a way of mimicking eternity and timelessness within the becoming of a life. During this time, vital and social becoming continues, and the sage becomes a sage figure. He plays the role of a sage in his century as one who watches life pass and the passions dwindle. If he is not of that century, at least his role as a man who is not of the century is indeed in becoming. Wisdom is not universalizable because it does not assume the whole of becoming and because it transforms becoming into a mythical representation. Like wisdom, sainthood or, or the other styles of individual life are extreme terms that illustrate the poles of moral life, but not the elements of moral life. On the basis of wisdom, sainthood or any moral attitude of this type, the moral life cannot be recreated by combination since there is no preoccupation of universality in these lifestyles that are taken as absolute and are nevertheless not universalizable. They require contemporary life in front of them in order to be what they are. They require a basis of contemporary life that they can negate. A veritable ethics would be one that accounted for contemporary life without becoming numb in the contemporaneity of this life, which should define through norms a meaning that surpasses them. Furthermore, Moralities quite generally attempt to fill in this interval between that through which a morality has value and the tendency to fall back, starting from principles of value, onto the norms discovered in contemporary life. But the act of linking between foundations and norms is often arbitrary and poorly formed. It is ethics in its center that is faulty. There is also a central dark zone in this domain between form and matter, between principle and consequences. Values would have to be not above norms, but across them, as the internal resonance of the network that they form and as their amplificative power. Norms could be conceived as expressing a definite individuation and consequently as having a structural and functional meaning on the level of individuated beings. On the contrary, values can be conceived as linked to the very birth of norms, which expresses the fact that norms emerge with an individuation and last as long as this individuation exists as an actual state. The plurality of systems of norms can consequently be envisioned otherwise than as a contradiction. There is no contradiction arising from the multiplicity of norms except if one makes of the individual an absolute and not the expression of an individuation. It creates a merely provisional and metastable state as a discontinuous phase of transfer. Okay, I'll stop here. Um, right, so um, he is again alluding to the earlier passage um, where he talks about the, the role of the, the, the sage and the saint and the hero um, as these figures of spirituality. Um, and here they're they're serving as uh, figures of ethical life, um, and uh, he he's arguing here that um, the these figures only make sense in opposition to the the um, the goings on of the world, um, uh, and so it's only uh, by opposing 
uh, oneself to the world and to um, everyday affairs and so on, that you can become a sage or a saint. Uh, and um, this this uh, figure of the of the saint is uh, um, is is a relative one because of that. It's it's not um, it's not an absolute uh, uh, way of of sort of reaching that substantial ethical life. Um, and then. Um, Likewise, in the other direction, he doesn't develop this as much, but we have the, the similar type of um, idea in the other direction, so that um, it's only um, it's only because there is uh, something like uh, a saint or uh, a sage that um, the everyday ethics or the ethics of everyday life can uh, sort of make itself known as an ethics of everyday life. Um, so someone who um, a person can only sort of um, know themselves and make themselves known as a, as a practical person insofar as someone else is a, an impractical person. Uh, um, so it's, it's this opposition that, that sort of uh, sets someone up as, as a practical person, as someone who um, is integrated into the life of the world and uh, um, who, uh, who adapts to circumstances in the proper way. Um, and then, he, so he talks about how um, morality, so systems of morality, um, are are sort of set out as um, ways to um, bridge the gap between norms and values. Uh, and so, there's this um, uh, there's always this. Um, so I guess there's two opposite um, errors that you can fall into. So on the one hand, you um, if you uh, sort of hold on to the the value side at the expense of the norms, then you end up just retreating into the the figure of the sage or the the saint or or um, the the person outside of the you fall back into the pure ethics um, side of the equation. Uh, and then on the other hand, if you if you hold on to the norms and the the way that norms are part of the functioning of a society, then you end up um, identifying the norms of your society with uh, with eternal values, um, and, and so you you just sort of um, identify the the two, and you you treat your your own society's norms as if they were eternal values um, that transcend any given society. Uh, and then, uh, so what you're doing is is effectively uh, losing sight of the the value side of the equation uh so the the, the way that uh, these principles uh transcend any given uh set of institutions uh you're you're losing sight of that and you're effectively just uh integrating yourself into the everyday ethics the the applied ethics uh rather than the pure one so either either approach to setting out a moral system is uh um is flawed because it it only holds on to one side of uh, of this opposition rather than grasping both of them together. Uh, and then the last bit here is about how um, uh, an understanding uh, that that grasps both the norms and the um, and the values at the same time would be one in which 
the multiplicity of norms is no longer a contradiction. Uh, and so this is, um, of course, uh, one of the sort of key problems of, of an ethics is that um, there are multiple different systems of norms uh, in terms of um, different societies or, or different groups within a society will have different ideas about what uh, is a good life and what is a good action and what what is a, a, a bad action and so on. Um, and, and so these different ethics are uh, seemingly contradictory to each other. If one says that doing X is good and another one says that doing X is bad, then you, you have a, a contradiction between the two. Um, and so Simon Don here is arguing that if we, if we have uh, this, if we can achieve this grasp of norms and values at the same time, then we sort of um, surpass this uh, level at which the, the multiplicity of norms is a contradiction. And so we, we reach uh, a form of understanding in which the norms are um, uh, the norms correspond with an individuation, and so insofar as that individual individuation is is uh, continuing, then um, those norms are are valid for that individuation, uh, and then for a different individuation, different norms would be valid, uh, and so there there's no contradiction between the two. Um, insofar as the two individuations are different. So I have two questions regarding that. The first one is like then Simongdong. If I um focusing on the ontogenesis, I think um Simongdong is like uh, focusing on generating generating some something new, like in terms of a value and ethics. And then it com constitutes like a something new, like in terms of the ethics and in terms of a collective collectivity that makes sense but at the same time my question is like then Simongdong doesn't uh, accept the idea that like there could be some eternal truth like uh, at the end of the day like maybe like a human being through individuation we can like you know make something generate some some new ethics at the end of the day but they, that's all like or Simongdong doesn't allow the idea like the there could be some kind of yeah going back to the Spinoza or some other philosophers like there could be some kind of eternal truth or some truth something like that and the second question is that regarding information then Simongdong thinks like um passing information through from previous one to the next one then that in, individual uh, that, that information means here extracted the value and then ethics altogether. Like I mean, it's like a, some to 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 make a, some some new do collectivity like um among I mean from the uh, values like as someone would extract some 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 value like a, not the whole thing and then that is mingled with the uh, ethics and then that I, that one is as an information would be passed down to next next generation or next individual whatever that that that. that these are my two questions. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Um, uh, I'll start with the uh, question about eternal truths. Um, I think you're right to say that um, for Simon Don, there there isn't uh, such a thing as a um, uh, an eternal ethical truth. Um, uh, so there there's nothing 
um, there's no set of norms that you can say these are like the eternal um, ethical norms and, and everyone should, uh, you know, orient their lives around these ethical norms. Um, but he, he also points to, he wants to um, sort of account for the intuition or the, the feeling that we have that, um, that uh, there is something about ethical life that is not uh, simply functional. So it's not, it, it's not just um, uh, a set of norms uh, that are um, sort of established for the functioning of a particular society we we have a, a feeling or a, an intuition that there's something that surpasses any given society um, and and can be used to um, contest the way that a society is is uh, is arranged. And so for Simondon, it's this value aspect that that um, that accounts for that um, that feeling of uh, something that goes beyond uh, any particular society. Um, and, and so it's only if we can grasp both the norm side and the value side at the same time, uh, or, or we can uh, bring about the genesis of norms and values together, um, it's only then that we can uh, have an understanding uh, in which we have norms, uh, uh, norms that are um, contingent and historical and belong to a certain society uh, and then at the same time have uh, values that um, that go beyond any given society. Um, so for the the second question, um, I think I think you're right again that um, these values or this the the way that the principles play the role of values has to do with information because um, as we saw just a a, a few pages earlier, he, when he talks about information, he's talking about something that is um, that can pass from one individuation to another. And, and so values are um, are what uh, what passes from one individuation to another, whereas norms are relative to a particular individuation. Um, and so this notion of information as what can pass from one individuation to another is uh, part of how we can grasp the concept of, of values and norms at the same time. So it's only because we understand individuation or uh, insofar as we understand individuation through this, this notion of information um, that, we can, that we can grasp values together with norms and, and not see them as opposed to each other. Uh, thank you. Just like a, just a simple follow-up question, it's like then norms can be turned into values at the end of the day? Um, I, I think rather than having norms turn into values, I think the way Simon Don would present it is that norms and, uh, or every every principle of ethics is, is both a norm and a value, uh, or it has a, a norm aspect and a, a value aspect um, so that you can... Um, uh, any any particular principle of an ethical system or an ethical life um, can serve as a, a norm or as a value, depending on um, what role it's playing in a, a larger system. Uh, all right. Thank you. Um, right. So let's go on to the next page or so. Um, so we're at the bottom of 376. Uh, considered as harboring, if someone would like to pick up from there. 
I can read. Considered as harboring a non-individuated reality within it, the being becomes a moral subject insofar as it is the association of an individuated reality and a non-individuated reality. To want to grant primacy to being insofar as it is individuated or to being insofar as it is not individuated is to oppose norms which are relative to the individuated being within a system, the values, which are relative to the non-individuated reality associated with the individuated being. I think someone's mic is on if you want to mute or go push to talk. Morality is neither in norms nor in values, but their communication, but in their communication grasped in its real center. Norms and values are the extreme terms of the being's dynamic, terms which do not consist in themselves and are not sustained in the being by themselves. There is no problem of the relation of values to norms of the opposition of open morality and closed morality but a problem of the phase shift of ethics. A retroactive illusion makes it seem like historical progress progressively opens ethics and replaces closed moralities with open moralities. Each new state of a civilization contributes opening and closing based on a single center. Opening and closing are the dimensions of an indefinite unidimensional and bipolar dyad. Every act Every functional structuration tends to spread out into norms and values according to a correlative couple. Norms and values do not exist prior to the system of being in which they appear. They are becoming instead of appearing and becoming without being part of becoming. There is a historicity of the emergence of values, just as there is a historicity of the constitution of norms. Ethics cannot be recreated based on norms or based on values, no more than the being can be recreated based on the forms and matters to which abstractive analysis reduces the conditions of ontogenesis. Ethics is the requirement according to which there is a significative correlation of norms and values. To grasp ethics in its unity requires that one accompany ontogenesis. Ethics is the meaning of individuation the meaning of the synergy of successive individuations. It is the meaning of the transductivity of becoming, the meaning according to which in each act there is both movement to go further and the schema that will integrate into other schemata. It is the meaning according to which the interiority of an act has a meaning in exteriority. To postulate that the interior meaning is also an exterior meaning that there are no deserted islands in becoming, no eternally self-enclosed regions, no absolute autarky of the instant, is to affirm that each activity has a meaning of information and is symbolic relative to life as a whole and to the totality of lives. There is ethics to the extent that there is information, i.e. signification overcoming a disparation of of elements of beings, thus making it such that what is interior is also exterior. The value of an act is not its universalizable nature according to the norm that it implies, but the effective reality of its integration in a network of acts that becoming is. This, in fact, concerns a network and not a chain of acts. The chain of acts is an abstract simplification of the network. Ethical reality is indeed structured in a network because there is a resonance of acts with respect to one another not by way of their implicit or explicit norms, but directly in the system that they form, 
i.e. the beings becoming, the reduction to norms is identical to the reduction to forms. It, involved, it only involves one of the extreme terms of the real. Should I stop there? Yeah, I think so. The uh, rest of the page is one paragraph. So yeah, let's stop here. Um, right, so um, he's continuing this um, development around norms and values and this uh, idea that um, a true ethics has to grasp both at the same time. Um, and um, so this, again, has to do with the reality of information and the way that information um, is, is, um, allows for an understanding of individuation, not as something that it, it comes about through um, the uh, application of a form to a matter, but instead as something that uh, is a the result of a process of ontogenesis in something that is not individuated. And uh, this grasp of individuated reality as, um, as, uh, as only part of reality is essential to understanding ethics um, as involving both norms and values. Um, yeah, so Angus, I think you're right. Uh, the same action creates both a norm and a value. Does this mean that the norm is like the individual and the value is the milieu? Um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, so the, the norms uh, correspond to the individual and uh, the values correspond to the milieu. Uh, and so um, it's because the values are not individuated that they can, uh, or that they, they correspond to the non-individuated aspect of reality that they can uh, pass from one uh, system of ethical life to another. Um, they, they are not sort of bound to one system in the way that norms are. Um, but at the same time, it's only because they're uh, it's only because there are norms that the values can can have any sort of um, efficacy in the world. Um, so it's only it's only because the values um, uh, are at the same time norms that they govern the actual concrete ethical life of uh, uh, of uh, individuals, um, and so that they they have any real efficacy. And uh, there's also um, in this passage, he talks about this opposition between open morality and closed morality, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, a reference to Bergson's uh, book on the two sources of morality and religion, um, where he he um, makes this opposition between open uh, open societies and closed societies, or, or open morality and, and closed morality. Um, and so there would be, it, it's uh, similar to this opposition between norms and values that, that Simon Don has set out in, in uh, the last couple paragraphs. Um, in, and so the, a closed uh, morality would be one in which there is um, um, a sort of uh, uh, functionalism of norms. So that the, the moral, uh, the, the set of norms uh, is, is functional for the operation of a certain society. Um, whereas the open society would be, or the open morality would be characterized by values that transcend any given uh, social order. Uh, and so for Simon Don, he's, uh, or sorry, for, for Bergson, there's the, a sort of historical evolution from 
uh, a closed morality to a, an open one. Um, and he sees this as, as um, part of the, the moral development of humankind. Um, whereas Simon Don is arguing that there, this is a, a sort of illusion uh, and there, there isn't really such a thing as an open morality and a closed morality. Uh, there, there are sort of open and, and closed sides to any ethical system or any um, ethical uh, ethical life, uh, and and so um, what we have to do is to grasp both those sides at the same time, rather than um, sort of uh, regard one as as being more advanced than the other. And I think this um, this last bit toward the end of the page on three seventy seven, when he talks about how. Um, there are no deserted islands in becoming. Um, I think that we can maybe tie this back in with what, his discussion of spirituality again, and his discussion of these uh, sort of ephemeral moments of spirituality, like the the gesture of the slave running away from the from his master. Um, this these sort of ephemeral gestures are, uh, or the the ephemeral um, acts of spirituality. Are are not lost in the sense that they they sort of disappear um, without leaving a trace. Uh, so they they uh, insofar as they are part of ethical life, they uh, contribute to um, to uh, to the formation of ethical life in in the future. Um, and so even if the the slave ends up being uh, being caught and killed or or punished or whatever uh, and the, so their escape is not um, successful there's still uh, that that gesture can still sort of uh, be repeated and and live on in ethical life in the future uh, so there's um, there's this capacity for ethical life to be uh, structured in this network of acts um, the this set of acts that are integrated with each other um and and create norms and values at the same time okay so let's go on to the next page um so i think we're right at the top of 378 if someone else would like to pick up from there uh no volunteers okay i can i can read this one again <clears throat> the act is neither matter nor form it is becoming in the process of becoming it is being to the extent that this being is by becoming the relation between acts does not pass through the abstract level of norms, but it goes from one act to another just as one goes from yellow-green to green and yellow by increasing the bandwidth of frequencies. The moral act is one that can spread out, phase shift into lateral acts, and link up with other acts by spreading out from its single active center. Far from being the encounter of a matter in a form, of an impulse and a norm, a desire and a rule, an empirical reality and a transcendental reality, the moral act is this reality that is more than unity and that spreads out from itself on both sides by joining with other realities of the same type. To reprise Malbranche's formula concerning freedom, according to which man is said to have movement to always go further, it could be asserted that the free act or the moral act is one that has enough reality to go beyond itself and encounter other acts. There is only a center of the act, there are no limits of the act. Each act is centered but infinite. The value of an act is its breadth, its capacity of transductive expansiveness. The act is not a unity in the path toward an end, which would imply a concatenation. An act that is only itself is not a moral act. 
the act that is a unity that consists in itself, that does not radiate outward and that has no lateral bands, is effectively one, but it is inserted into becoming without belonging to becoming, without completing this phase shift of being that becoming is. The act that is more than unity, that cannot reside or consist only in itself, but also resides and is completed in an infinity of other acts, is an act whose relation to other acts is signification and possesses the value of information. By taking generosity as the foundation of morality, Descartes uh, revealed this power of the act to extend beyond itself. But since he wanted to found a provisional morality, i.e. a morality that only looks ahead, he did not indicate the retroactive force of the act, which is just as important as its proactive force. Each act takes up the past again and encounters it anew. Each moral act resists becoming and does not allow itself to be covered over as past. Its proactive force is that through which it will always belong to the system of the present, able to be evoked again in its reality, extended, taken up again by an act, later on according to the date, but contemporaneous with the first act according to the dynamic reality of beings becoming. Acts construct a reciprocal simultaneity, a network that does not allow itself to be reduced to the unit, sorry, to be reduced by the unidimensionality of the successive. An act is moral to the extent that it has, by virtue of its central reality, the power to eventually become simultaneous with respect to another act. Non-moral act is lost within itself, an act that is covered over and covers over a part of the subject's becoming. It is that which achieves a loss of being according to becoming. The non-moral act introduces a rift into the being that will prevent it from becoming simultaneous with respect to itself. If it exists, the immoral act is one that destroys the significations of acts that have existed or that will be able to be called on to exist. And instead of being localized within itself like the non-moral act, the immoral act is an act that introduces a schema of confusion, preventing other acts from structuring into a network. In this sense, the immoral act is not an act properly speaking, but like the inverse of an act, a becoming that absorbs and destroys the relational significations of other acts, that drags them into false paths of transductivity, that misleads the subject with respect to himself. The immoral act is a parasitic act, a false act that draws its semblance of signification from a random encounter. Uh, I think I'll stop here because uh, this is a multi-page paragraph again. Um, so he's continuing again with this notion of grasping the midpoint um, of uh, the midpoint between norms and values or the point out of which norms and values will be generated. Uh, so in the same way that um, um, we have to start from the yellow-green portion of the spectrum as the intermediate point rather than starting from red and, and violet and trying to um, uh, sort of uh, find a, a, a mixture of the two. Um, so in the same way, we have to start from uh, this, um, this act that is both norm and uh, value at the same time or that institutes norms and values at the same time. Um, and so the, the moral act then um, is the one that allows for um, the formation of this network of acts uh, with each other so that they can uh, have this internal resonance. They can, uh, um, that one act can, can be contemporary with another, even though they're separated by time. Uh, and so... Um, um, 
the two sort of contrasts with this are um, the the non-moral act. So this would be an act that is sort of contained within itself and doesn't uh, link up with other acts uh, that doesn't allow for the possibility of um, internal resonance to occur. Uh, and then the other opposition is the immoral act. Uh, and this is one that, um, so he says it's not properly speaking an act, um, it's sort of the, the uh, counterpart to an act. It's, um, it's something that um, uh, destroys the signification of other acts rather than um, forming a, a network with it and, and uh, internal resonance. Um, so this would be a, an act that um, that um, uh, some sort of action that um, destroys signification rather than uh, allowing for signification to occur. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, so we're at um, we're on three seventy nine. At such is aestheticism. If uh, someone would like to pick up from there, and. Uh, can take us to the end whoever uh takes this part will have the honor of finishing the book for us yeah i, I can read it if there, there's nobody who wants to read yeah it. go for it Ollie. okay such as is it right such as yes exactly uh, i thought this is as counter morality the unification of acts according to certain shared style and not according to their power of a transductivity as as adaptivism is a parasite of borer becoming. It is a creation of abstract forms within the existence of the subject, the illusion of the unification according to these abstract forms. Atheticism, which once ever no acts, deceives itself in a certain sense and becomes an iteration of a novelty according to extrinsic norm of novelty. In the same way, conform conformism or perpetual opposition to social norms is a, a resignation facing the characteristic of the actuality of the acts of acts and the flight into a style of iteration according to a positive forms of coincidence or a negative form of opposition with respect to a uh, given iteration iteration expresses the tendency of an act to dominate or becoming instead of ranking up with other acts the non-moral or immoral act is one that because it does not involve a relative inadequacy to accept an attempt to become perfect, perfect, perfect within its own limits, can only be recommenced and not continued. This act is ego ego egoistic in itself relative to other acts. It has a tendency to per persevere in its being, which makes it such that it is ex excised, excised from other acts. It's not penetrated by them, cannot penetrate them, but only dominate them. Any moral act harbors a certain internal organization that situated it and remits it as an act. It develops according to a certain partially inhibitive, inhibitive regulation that inserts its existence as an act into a network of acts. The act in which there is no longer this index of totality and possibility of other acts the act that provides itself with an S, a 30, a 30, despite the genetic character of the emergence as a phase of becoming. The act 
that does not receive this measure that is both activating, inhibitive, and arises from the network of other acts is the wild and crazed act, which is in certain sense in identical with the perfect act. Such an act is the one in which there is no longer the presence of this pre-individual reality that is associated with the individual being. The wild act is one that tends Tends toward the total individuation that no longer admits anything as real except what is totally individuated. Acts are networked to the extent that they are con- co- considered on the ground of nature, the source of becoming via uh, continued individuation. This wild and created the act remains with only an internal normativity, norm- norm- consistent in self, sustains in se- itself in the vertigo of its. It- Iterative, iterative existence. It observes and concentrates within itself all emotion and all action, makes the different representations of the subject converge towards it and becomes a unique point of view. Every solicitation of the subject calls for the iteration of this act. The subject is reduced to individual as a result of a single individuation. And the individual reduced to the singularity of perpetually recommencing here and now is displaced everywhere, like a being detached from the world and from other subjects by abandoning its role of transfer. Oh, ooh, the last paragraph. Ethics is that through which the subject remains subject, refusing to become an absolute individual, closed domain of reality or detached singularity. It is that through which the subject remains in an ever-charged internal, external problematic, i.e. in a real present, living under the central zone of being, that wanting to become either form or matter. Ethics expresses the meaning of the perpetuated individuation, the stability of becoming, which is that of the being as pre-individuated, individuating, tending toward the continuous that reconstructs it and organizes the form of a communication, a reality as vast as a pre-individual system across the individual, understood as the implicative transfer emerging from nature, societies become a word. Right, thank Done. you. Yes, <laughs> we finished the book. Um, wow. So let's see, there, um, what do we want to talk about in this last bit? Um, right, so I think this, this last paragraph here, so ethics, um, is that through which the subject remains subject. So the subject, if you remember, um, is something that contains the individual and also the pre-individual reality that um, that accompanies it. Um, so the subject remains subject here because it uh, it grasps the the subject stays um, at the level of um, the reality in which there is an individual and uh, an associated non-individual reality. Um, so this is a refusing the sort of temptation or the the idea of um, uh, of uh, becoming a substantial reality, uh, a reality that would be self-contained and would not include uh, a pre-individual reality. Um, so. Uh, ethics means to hold on to the the um, stage of being in which there is both uh, an individual and a non-individuated milieu that accompanies it. And uh, maybe one other point um, 
before we end. So there's um, this this bit is uh, kind of strange, but um, so he, he talks about this wild or crazed act. Um, and he says this in a certain sense is identical with the perfect act. So this is this would be an act that um, is sort of self-contained. It would be, a, um, he says, it, it's one that tends toward the total individuation and no longer admits anything as real except what is totally individuated. So this would be um, an act that would uh, have its own norms uh, within itself that would not be governed by um, any sort of uh, external principle, uh, and it would be a, a sort of substantial reality in the sense that it doesn't require um, it doesn't require an associated milieu. It, it's uh, something that uh, subsists on its own as an individual, uh, and so this um, this would be the the perfect act in the sense that it would be uh, an act that is um, complete and and self contained. But uh, because this is something that is impossible to achieve, um, this attempt attempt at a perfect act is uh, is a, a sort of um, crazed act for for Simondon. It's something um, that is uh, um, a negative um, attempt. Like to, to try to do this is is something um, uh, opposed to ethical life. I wonder if this is related to that. Uh, kind of strange suggestion in the section on anxiety that it's possible for the individual to kind of undergo a transformation via anxiety on its own, but that it would be extremely rare. Maybe that would result in something that's sort of only iterative rather than repeatable, like the whatever this crazed act is. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting suggestion. Um, yeah, so in that passage... He, he talks about anxiety as being the um, the the sort of um, what ends up what happens to the individual if it tries to resolve its own problems uh, on its own without um, entering into the collective. Uh, and then he he has this weird remark where he says that um, you know maybe in a few rare cases it is possible to actually resolve these problems. Um, uh, on on one's own uh, as an individual, and rather than going through the collective. Um, so he, he he at first says that you it, it doesn't seem to be possible, but then he says in a few rare cases maybe it is. Um, and uh, yeah, so maybe yeah, this crazed act is something that um, allows for the individual to um, resolve the the problems uh, at the level of the individual. Uh, and uh, not go through the collective. Um, yeah, that's an interesting suggestion, but I, I think it's it's hard to um, say definitively one way or the other, given what uh, what's provided in the text for us. Um, I, I'm just thinking like a wild and the creates the actor. Maybe like it's not that negative, because like it. Uh... It reminds me of like madness of Deleuze. So maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but the, um, it is kind of like a, it's a kind of like to see the source of uh, um, singularity, singularity of individual, individual. So it, it is a kind of like the source of like a genesis, like something new at the end of the day. Like, 
Well, what do you think about that? Like, should yeah. we understand that was as a negative one? I think it can be some kind of like a stimul stimulus of, I mean, generating something new. Yeah, that's an interesting suggestion. Um, I think, um, I think for Simon Don, at least, um, there isn't really this sense of um, um, sort of trying to take madness as something that would have um, uh, like a, a a functional side to it um, in the way that other authors sometimes use it. Um, so the I think for him, this term does have a negative connotation, um, but I think we can potentially uh, um, argue along the lines that, that you're suggesting that there, there could be something like um, a role of, of uh, a kind of madness or crazed act as something that um, uh, generate something new uh, that allows for the the formation of uh, uh, a new set of uh, a new network of, of of acts and a new system of ethical life. Um, the only thing, the only sort of uh, caution that I would put to that is that um, so here he Simon Do in the, in the last couple of paragraphs he talks about aestheticism and um, the way that um, in an asceticism, novelty becomes uh, a norm uh, of its own. So doing something original or, or new or, or inventive becomes a norm. Um, and uh, so this, uh, this system in which the, the new is a, is a norm uh, is, is uh, a way of sort of only grasping one side of ethical life. Uh, it, 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 allows you to um, set up this norm of, of novelty, but it, uh, it doesn't allow you to um, grasp the values at the same time. So um, I think for Simon Don, he would want to see something that would, um, that would set up norms and, and values together um, uh, rather than something that um, takes, that institutes novelty as a norm uh, in itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agreed. I, actually, that's the point. I'm, I'm just confused a little bit still. Like, cause like, what is a core value? Like a human being would take as a, as a something like to pass down information to pass it uh, down to the next generation or next individual or something like that. So can, normal and the value can be identical. I mean, go together always. Yeah, it's uh, still, I don't know, it's still it's a little bit confusing here. What exactly is Simon Dong, I mean, implies here? Yeah, so I think you're right to talk about um, passing on from one generation to the next, but um, I think there's also the sense of something that can, um, that can sort of, um, uh, overcome distances of time and space. So you can, uh, so a value would be something that, um, or uh, an act would would have value insofar as it is something that can be sort of re-enacted or re, um, reincarnated in a, a new moment. Um, so um, 
the the slave escaping from his master in the third century BC or or whenever um, is something that that action can be repeated in a completely different social context in say the nineteenth century um, Jamaica or or whatever um, the the same act can be or uh, a repetition uh, a reenactment of that act can can occur um, or an act can enter into resonance. Uh, in, into the this network with an act that um, that uh, previously occurred in a completely different context, uh, and so it, it's insofar as the acts um, have this capacity of entering into um, into relations with each other across time and space and different cultures. Um, uh, that's it, it's to that extent that they um, have value for Simondo. Yeah, sure. True, true. And then uh, later, maybe like we would have a chance like, to talk about like uh, what specific examples of um, Simondonian value like uh, could be. Yeah, that's, that's uh, um, a good question because he, he leaves it open here. And I think that's deliberate um, because if he, if he were to... Um, to say like you know here's a list of values and and here here are the values that that um, ethical life should be governed by then those values immediately become norms right they become uh, um, the they become the principles of uh, a particular ethical life rather than something that transcends a given ethical life um, so I think um, I think it's it's hard to um, it's hard to sort of pin down a value to say that, like, you know, our value is X or our value is Y. Um, I think as he, as he puts it here, there's a historicity to value. So they emerge in a historical context, um, but then they, they transcend that context and connect with other acts in different contexts. Um, so I think um, from the the few examples that he gives, I think we can talk about the 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 slave um, escaping as a an instance of um, an act that has value, um, and uh, and so there would be a, a certain value. I guess we can call it a value of of freedom, um, or a value of uh, um, equality. Um, so a, a resistance to um, to um, a system of of domination of one individual over another. Um, I think we can sort of extract these values from what he's describing here, but um, we always have to um, we all, we always have to avoid the danger of the values sort of falling back into norms and and just being a a, a system of norms of a particular ethical life rather than being something that. Uh, transcends any given ethical life. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, any any other questions before we wrap up for today? We're pretty much at time. Um, we have a couple minutes. I just, oh, sorry, 61, do you want to say something? <clears throat> no, it's, it's okay, go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, it's these, this description of norms and values seems to be pretty, I mean, it's pretty content free. Um, like you were just saying, he doesn't give us many examples of 
acts that he would consider to be valuable. Um, and I wonder if, I don't know, I guess if, uh, this, uh, this way of thinking of norms and values as kind of, uh, repeatable acts in like a system of internal resonance, uh, could encompass like acts that we would clearly see as immoral. Um, if it's, if it's kind of like totally content free, uh, I mean, um, not immoral in Simon Dom's sense, but you know, there could be actions that probably everybody in this group, um, would, you know, agree are immoral, but are consistent with, uh, you know, uh, uh, network of actions of, of norms and values within a given sort of social system um, that might be moral acts um, in accordance with the definition of moral acts that he gives here. Yeah, this is um, a sort of general question about um, um, formalism in relation to ethics. So, um, any any type of ethical um, uh, system or, or system of, of of ethics that that tries to account for ethical life in formal terms uh, as opposed to um, material terms in, in terms of content would um, would have this issue of um, like uh, and this is this is an objection that's often raised in connection with uh, Kant's notion of uh, the formal um, uh, principle of acting in accordance with duty, um, and and there's of course the famous case of Eichmann, um, who um, apparently thought it was his duty to um, operate the Holocaust in the efficient bureaucratic manner, um, uh, and uh, and so um, um, the the sort of formal principle of acting in accordance with duty uh, seems to allow for something um, completely uh, immoral to to sort of fit in as a, a kind of duty. Um, but I think what Simon Don would argue is that his his um, the kind of ethics that he's talking about here is not a formal one because that. Um, opposition between a, a formal uh, a formal ethics and then the content of ethics is already a form matter distinction um and and it's precisely the, the form matter distinction that he's trying to get away from uh and and so i think he would see the the uh system of ethics that he's presenting here as as not as a formal one but as one out of which form and matter are are generated or form and content are generated um, but you're right that it, it, um, it requires some, uh, um, interpretation, I guess, to, to apply this to a particular case. And it's always, um, there's always the possibility that someone can, can apply it in ways that, um, we would find objectionable. Um, and, uh, so like if, if the, the gesture of the slave escaping the master is an act that can form a network with other acts and so on, um, then we we can ask also, you know, is the the action of the slave master who who captures the slave is that an action that can form a network with other acts uh, 
And you, you could point to, you know, other um, slave owners throughout history that have acted in similar ways and, and sort of um, come up with a, a like an anti-network of acts of, of slave owners throughout history. Um, so, yeah, I think I think um, I think there's always the possibility. Uh, I think any any ethical system will or, or system of, of you know, principles of ethics will always allow for that um, possibility uh, that it can be sort of applied in a perverse sense. Um, I, I think I, I don't think there's any way to um, come up with like a, a perfect system of norms that would um, uh, sort of preclude a, a perverse interpretation. Uh, and I think that's sort of what he's pointing to when he talks about how norms and, and how there's always uh, this complementarity of norms and values. Um, so any system of norms has to um, sort of allow for it the capacity of being transcended and being overcome and being replaced by a new system of norms uh, for that very reason. Um, so I think we're pretty much at time now. Um, so yeah, we we finished the the book itself. Um, so the Simon Don's thesis, uh, uh, which makes up volume one of the translation. Um, uh, and so what, what I have suggested suggested is that we look at the translation of the um, Cavalles and Lodman text that I did um, I posted a while ago. Um, we we can look at that first, uh, and that'll take a, probably a couple weeks, uh, and then we can go on to volume two um, of uh, of the book and look at the uh, complementary texts that that go along with it. Yeah. So thanks for um, accompanying me on this long journey uh, through the text, but uh, I think I've definitely gotten uh, a lot out of it, and I hope everyone else has as well. Thank you for thank you for reading this okay. amazing book. Okay, so um, see you all uh, next week, hopefully, and uh, we'll we'll pick up from there.